1: no purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello and welcome back to another episode of New Books on Japanese Studies, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I am your host today, Jenny Lee from the University of Arizona. In today's episode, we have Dr. Laura Moretti with us to talk about her new book, Pleasure in Profit, Popular Prose in 17th Century Japan, published by Columbia University Press this year. Laura is currently teaching and researching about pre-modern Japanese literature at the University of Cambridge in the UK. So this book is a systematic study of popular literature in 17th century Japan from the perspectives of readership and publication. Although occasionally deemed vulgar, popular literature, as Laura shows in this book, is an important window through which we could get a glimpse of everyday life of early modern times. So welcome, Laura. Thank you so much for joining us in the New Books on Japanese Studies channel today. And thank you very much, Jeannie, for making this possible. It's very exciting. (laughs) Thank you. So I have known you for a while, and I have been reading your research about prose and narratives of pre-modern Japan, How did you
2: become interested in Japanese literature? Um, yeah, that's a very interesting question, because um, I, when I started studying Japanese uh, studies, and obviously I was learning the Japanese language, and uh, as you know, we are a truly multidisciplinary um, area, um, I uh, started uh, reading Japanese uh, literature in translation, and I really got very interested in parody, something that I do not uh, um, uh, deal with in this book. Um, and I got particularly interested in the fact that um, the century remains the same. The 17th century um, gave us, uh, uh, in Japan, gave us uh, some very interesting texts that minimally rework source texts, so word-by-word parodies. And I was struck by it because if you read, uh, for example, Gerard Jeannette, he mentions this is untenable for long texts, and they were doing it for long texts. Um, so for me, that was really the hook now, because, um, in a way. I think that early modern uh, Japanese literature really challenges our assumptions vis-à-vis the literary and what we know about literature, and that is really what I fell in love with. Um, it forces us to think out of uh, out of the box, and um, I'm very glad because here at Cambridge we have also students who are trying to do that. For example, I have a, uh, an undergraduate student uh, Joseph Bill who is working on very quirky late 1890 early. 19th century uh, books that are conceived as parodies of travel guidebooks, and they're not—they're not travelogues, they're not picaresque narratives. So we have don't we don't even have the terminology to talk about this in literary studies. And really, this is also uh, what I do in my research is is really um, and what I fell in love with Japanese literature early modern times. It really challenges us and our assumptions of literature. Yeah.
1: That's amazing. And there are certain points you mentioned that I definitely want to come back later. But from your book, other books and articles, I understand that your interest is mostly in popular literature. Is there any particular reason that you're more drawn to popular literature rather than
2: other forms of literacy? Yeah, I mean... Partly, I think this is down to my own background. I do not come from any elite as such. Um, And in a way, I'm very proud of this background. Um, I mean, nothing is taken for granted. You have to work very hard to reach your ambitions. And I think that this generates a lot of positive energy. So I'm very interested in the kind of energy, social, cultural, intellectual, that is associated with those readers in early modern Japan, who did not have um, any privileged access to knowledge because of the household they were living in, for example. So partly my desire is to give these readers a voice um, and for the 17th century, uh, the only way we can do this is really to explore what kind of books were in sync with a wider range of readers, and with readers who did not read the highbrow classical Chinese, and yet were hungry for access to the knowledge that they needed to be successful individuals. I'm also interested in the circulation of this energy, um, and so the circulation of energy between. Lowbrow and highbrow, and so problematizing any sort of facile dichotomy between uh, these two, uh, you know, entities. And this is something, obviously, that Carlo uh, Ginsburg has suggested many, many years ago in his wonderful work on the 16th century Miller from Friuli. And in chapter three, I explore how this happens in a specific title, um, uh, uh, in a specific text, which is entitled Tales of Karmic causality. And it was fantastic because it started out as a manuscript within an elite, uh, the disciples of a certain writer and monk, Suzuki Shosan. Then at a certain point, this manuscript, we don't know how, got into the hands of a commercial publisher who uh, employed, or into the hands of the author, Asai Ryoi. We don't know which one came first. And they sort of appropriated this manuscript and made it into a fantastic six books with tales of horror ghosts and all sorts of um, catchy stories that make us think about karma and how we should behave. And that went back to the disciples who said, no, this bad book, they call it bad book, Jabon, should not be out there. And so they published their own sort of authorized version uh, of the same text. So there is this Fabulous circulation of energy between the popular and the highbrow, and um, I'm very intrigued by this. Yes,
1: yes, that is absolutely fascinating. I was, uh,
2: I I really liked that part in the book. <laughs> yeah, it was quite fun uh, to write it and to understand how one was, uh, you know, uh, uh, generating more uh, production on the other. Uh, anyhow, <laughs> yes.
1: Um- so just looking from the title of your book, this sounds like a huge project, but you actually chose very specific angles to discuss how popular prose were read and produced. So to get into more detail about the readership aspect first, which is the uh, chapters one and two in the in your book, um, you asked the question of who could read
2: what? Can you tell us more about this part? Um, yes, of course. I must admit that it, it was, in a way, a huge project. And indeed, I had to make choices. Um, and we know choices are very difficult. Um, but leaving my choices aside and answer your question here, uh, when I discussed this work uh, in its preliminary stages with colleagues outside of Japanese studies, um, the first question they would almost systematically ask was, what was the literacy rate at this time in Japan? Yes, a legitimate question and very tough question because we are dealing with a century for which we have no statistics uh, whatsoever. Um, so research to date has been quite conservative on this point. Um, and uh, for example, this Japanese scholar of uh, publishing uh, history, uh, Konda Yozo, refuses to acknowledge the 17th century commercial printed prose that was issued before 1680s ever reached anyone other than samurai Buddhist monks and economically powerful merchants. So it's not just a social sort of a status discourse, but it is also a matter of who was wealthy enough to buy books and who had enough uh, sort of literacy. Um, And this kind of more um, uh, sort of uh, 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 traditional view is also retained by, for example, another giant of uh, publishing industry in early modern Japan, Nagatomo, Uh, Chiyoji is quite sceptical in finding readers beyond townspeople endowed with financial substance. So what they're saying is that commercial publishers were producing books and they were producing them in considerable numbers. And this is something I really explore in in chapter one. They're incredible numbers. They were producing them for a negligible proportion of the population, probably 10%. Now, this figure really puzzled me because it is at odds with the towering number of books published at the time and the towering number of publishers. Um, And, um, you know, uh, such a small readership would not have made it economically viable for commercial publishers to invest their money in publishing a high number of books in the vernacular. Um, And so... um, I had to rethink how we do this. I think that um, there is an interesting um, uh, line of inquiry that emerges from other scholars, Shibata Jun, Richard Rubinger, and Yokoto Fuyuhiko, for example, um, which is... Who could read what in 17th century Japan? I don't think they address this question, but this is the question I try to address in chapter one. And so I'm proposing what um, I call a spectrum of multiple literacies. Um, and that, um, you know, th- there are, a, there is a multiplicity of variables that need to be taken into consideration when reconstructing this spectrum. So, I explore how readers could position themselves at one or more junctures on this spectrum. So on the one hand, you have those, the ability to read texts written in classical Chinese that come without any reading glosses. You have to be very uh, literate in order to tackle this. At the other end of the spectrum, there is the ability to read texts written in phonetic script only. Easy peasy. Scholarship to date has tended to think uh, of these two poles with little in between. But in chapter one, and as well as in other chapters, I discuss how publishers of popular prose gave life to all sorts of interesting modulations between these poles. Um, so an expert reader, as I call it, would be able to move freely across the whole spectrum But a novice reader uh, with mm, phonetic literacy mainly or only would uh, position themselves at specific limited junctions, but not only at the pole of phonetic uh, uh, readings. Um, And I'm really interested in how 17th century popular prose offered texts that negotiated these multiple literacies on the printed page, So, for example, there is this fantastic guy, Ejima Tamenobu. He was a keen Confucianist. He issued two charming miscellanies conceived as mirrors for writers and successful lives. And Ejima wants to invoke authority by quoting primary sources from the Confucian uh, canon, the Analects, for example. And, of course, he has to quote them in classical Chinese. This reference would be lost on many of his readers, the novice readers he is trying to address because the rest of his book is written in the vernacular. So what he does is to negotiate such quotations uh, by adding phonetic glosses that are akin to interlinear translations. And so he retains the literary Chinese on the page, but also makes it accessible by the addition of phonetic script only translations. And this happens also with the Buddhist canon. Uh, The Buddhist canon was actually, in a way, translated for the novice reader in 17th century. And I think that this um, uh, is something that uh, gives a contribution to the discourse around translation in early modern Japan as well. Translation, in, in in a way, vernacularization and opening up to all readers on this spectrum of multiple literacies is a form of translation, I think. That is very interesting
1: and I, I feel like I can relate to um, what you were saying about 17th lit- lit- about well modern day scholarship on 17th century literature um, because even in um, current scholarship on 19th century or even 18th century, Japanese literature, when commercial publishing was really uh, blooming in the scholarship nowadays, the discussion of peasants is still absent mm. by and mm. large. Um, so I'm really glad that you're asking this very important question of who could read what mm. in your book. Mm. It's absolutely fascinating. Thank you. Then, okay, returning to the book. You then move on to discuss the publishing aspect, which I, which is one of my favorite parts. You mentioned that from the historical materials, what was perceived as genre can be different from what us modern people think of as genre. And you explain this matter through materials in which publishers and readers organized and categorized books. Can you
2: talk about this issue about genre? Yes, a genre is a really sticky point when it comes to 17th century Japanese literature. Um, If you pick up any literary history of early modern Japanese literature written in Japanese or English or any other language for what it matters, they talk about the existence of one genre known as kanazoshi or booklets in the vernacular. So, in an article that I published in 2011, I have debunked the existence of such a genre. Simply put, it it did really not exist, and this label Kanazoshi, is a sort of a historical modern construct that has been imposed on the 17th century and hence contributed to what I define as a literary of a literary history of exclusion. Um, I didn't get the the chance to talk about, uh, to introduce the book, so to speak, Um, but um, uh, I think that um, uh, when it comes to uh, the the 17th century, um, there was really a luxurious forest of books that have been uh, uh, exciting readers for a century and beyond. And yet it has been almost left unexplored for 400 years after that. And the 17th century popular prose has turned into the great unread of Japanese literature. And this is what I mean by a literary hobby of exclusion. Um, and uh, um, this, this idea of trying to label a genre that never existed didn't really help. Um, 17th century popular prose really disconcerts. It is made of texts that challenge our understanding of literature. The archive is inhabited by texts that are no fictional stories, even simple stories, texts that do not work a novel, uh, text whose contents and structure discomfort us, unsettling our expectations towards the literary. And so scholarship on Japanese early modern literature has been hampered by a sort of elitist and anachronizing definition of literature, belle lettres, asking to view most publications of the time, the ones they really ca- uh, care to engage with, as poorly formed entertainment or dismal. Didactic things waiting to be swept later on. So this idea that Oshi, this this genre, doesn't really make sense. But at the same time, we use it in order to say that 17th century was really uh, a trans transition moment to something greater and better. Um, So this is what I debunk uh, back in in, in 2011. Um, uh, But then we really are left with the question of, um, do we find uh, any sign, any trace of what we might call genre consciousness in 17th century publishing industry? How can we talk about books without putting them in genres, right? so my conclusion is that there was something different in place and something that I refer to as publishing genres. Um, so this appears in book trade catalogs. Publishers were very keen to sell their books. So they organize book trade catalogs. And uh, from around the 1670s, a lot of these book trade catalogs are organized around categories. Um, So, for example, you have the the label that would be translated in English as etiquette and cookery books. So, the ultimate goal of these categories was to entice potential buyers to purchase more of the same, or at least what on the surface was signposted as more of the same. There is no evidence, though, that authors were aware of where their text would be placed among the several publishing genres. Um, And and so to quote one of, uh, I think, the most lucid and helpful definitions of modern genre, which was put forward by scholar of Japanese medieval literature, Professor Linda Chance, there was no menu that authors were asked to conform to when writing. Moreover, As I reveal in in my book, the boundaries of these publishing genres were often porous, titles traveling from one category to another over time, that was not a problem. What is more, the study of individual publishing genres, going back to the etiquette and cookery books, um, display uh, an appreciable lack of core features, characterizing all the texts inscribed under the same heading. As such, I think that publishing genres worked very differently from our modern understanding of genre and were meaningful epistemological tools, not at the moment of the creation of, or the perusal of a book, but rather when a book was put up for sale. So publishing genres were devised as convenient marketing tools devised by publisher to impose some order on a publishing space that otherwise would have been utterly chaotic. Um, So what I argue is that these publishing genres offer an insider view of the publishing products released and marketed by the 17th century. And they enable us to organize the forest of books commercially produced in the 17th century in full respect of the early modern sensibility around genre and without imposing any ahistorical constructs. So we can or, you know, organize the study of 17th century materials from within. This is how I use them. Uh, having said that, though, I never lose sight of the fact that they were convenient labels and marketing tools not genres in the modern sense of of the word. I hope it makes sense. And for me, chapters three, four, and five are really a a sort of exploration of specific publishing genres, uh, one being the etiquette uh, and um, cookery books. But um, chapters six and seven look transversally at specific themes or topics that occupy space across uh, publishing genres. So Really, the bottom line is that 17th century Japanese popular prose ask us to think genre in a completely different way that we're used to. Again, discomforting us, right?
1: (laughs) Yeah, and it's truly amazing that you're able to um, discuss this huge project from just the small details of these catalogs. I think that's absolutely... um, Wonderful, and um, I,
2: yeah, they were very useful starting points. And then, as I said, you really need to use uh, use them very carefully because you have to acknowledge that they are not genres, <laughs> and so you have to be. Uh, willing to be taken out of the genre of the publishing genre when a text moves out of them, and so what does that tell us? Um, and I, I do that uh, for um, a number of texts in in across the chapters. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Slash NBN fifty to get fifty percent off.
1: Right, nice. Um, another very interesting part in the book is where you talk about how books were used for educational purposes to teach about ethical, religious, and moral knowledge, like the one you just mentioned about teaching about karmic um, uh, knowledge. What are some examples other than the 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 ones the 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 ones that circulated back and forth? What are some examples of these texts and how did they achieve their purposes?
2: Hmm. So this is mainly what I work on in chapter three. And I'm very glad that you're picking this up because in the various book talks I've been engaged with, this chapter was never discussed. So really, thank you. Thank you. Thank um, So uh, if it is all right with you, I will be cheeky here. And rather than giving examples of specific texts, I would like to present here some of the core findings. And I hope to entice readers to read chapter three to find out the textual evidence that um, support these arguments. So in this chapter, I explore how commercial publishers negotiated the sort of plurality of knowledge associated with Confucianism and Buddhism for the benefit of the novice reader. And and really, I think that at the core of uh, this book, uh, sorry, I I just deviate for a second, but really at the core of this book um, is the uh, idea that Uh, knowledge-making is a pivotal aspect of popular literature in print. Um, And uh, we are asked to acknowledge and engage with what I call the epistemic value of literature, how literature conveys knowledge of extra-literary reality, factual, social, interpersonal knowledge. Um, And I propose that readers and publishers of popular prose did find pleasure in profit. Um, The readers enjoyed not just pure entertainment, but knowledge and the profit from gaining it, while publishers strove to provide works that would sell, because either they suited leisure or slaked the desire for learning or both simultaneously. So this is really key to my argument, breaking down the wall that is traditionally perceived between enjoyment, so the aesthetic and knowledge, uh, or the didactic and the cognitive. And so chapter three really fits into this broader uh, project uh, of my book. And it does so by... um, focusing on how these books negotiated the plurality of knowledge, specific knowledge associated with Confucianism and Buddhism. And they did so for the benefit of the novice reader. Um, So in this chapter, I study um, uh, a a text that uh, embodied this desire to commodify, shall we say, moral, religion, and to a certain extent, civic knowledge. And I have identified a few key points that emerge from uh, uh, engaging with these texts that no one looked at because they're boring didactic texts that commodify Confucian and Buddhist knowledge. Um, So they're not literary enough to be considered part of literature, but they are if you open up this idea of democratic idea of literature, as I do, but they are not quite philosophically stimulating as you would do if you are into intellectual history, so they have left behind. So my chapter brings them back into the conversation. And what I found out is that. First of all the cultural negotiation of the way was carried out by decontextualizing knowledge from its original linguistic context Chinese classical Chinese and from its primary milieu temples sermons lectures and engaging with the translation of confucian and buddhist concepts to make them comprehensible to readers equipped with literacy mainly in the phonetic script Um, And um, I also um, think that readers were presented with a corpus of transformative literature that encouraged the study of and therefore the assimilation of virtues such as sincerity, harmony, frugality, filial piety, and patience. So this corpus taught, but at at the same time, what came out is that it also offers some soothing hope Readers were assured of fulfilling, happy, and comfortable lives, why not, when embracing the writer's path illustrated in these texts. And this chapter, so on the one hand, I work on what kind of knowledge has been put forward in, uh, as you asked, teaching about ethical, religious, and moral knowledge. Um, But at the same time, I also uh, look at how what kind of textual strategies characterize these didactic texts, but also more generally didactic prose of this time. Um, So first, as I mentioned a little bit before, I think quotations from Confucian and Buddhist sources were used as seals of authority. They wanted it there, but they were made accessible thanks to the addition of phonetic glosses, uh, near to a form of interlinear translation in the vernacular. Second, analogies. They loved them. They were cherished as an apt means of domesticating complex ideas. Um, Third example and picture punctuated the drier non-narrative explanatory prose. So going back to this idea of breaking down the wall of what is aesthetic reading and what is cognitive engagement with didactic. Uh, reading, right? Um, so, these this, uh, exemplar and pictures um, offer narratives, actually, that were at times packed with actions, at times emotionally captivating, and this ensured cognitive engagement. And finally, there was a fascination with filling text with voices. Um, so, the, the dialogical format was very popular in these uh, texts, uh, And I think that this problematizes the very act of reading Um, with what I call a residue of orality. We are reading a written page, but we are asked to listen to someone speaking. Um, And I think that, uh, what is it, you know, this in a way builds upon the oral and vocal tradition of vernacular Buddhism, which was um, uh, already circulating among audiences. In medieval times. Um, but what is exciting about 17th century texts is that they are confronted, we're confronted with a panoply of voices. Uh, it can be the, an authoritative voice that stands out, or it can be a plurality of voices um, that promote debate as well as intellectual syncretism. And I think it, this idea that everyone was entitled in a voice in this text, So you have sometimes that says, oh, well, I hear this from this old lady, unnamed, right? And, and yet there is something to learn from her. And this goes back to my fascination with non-elites. We're all entitled to a voice. I hope that answered, even though I, I cheekingly uh, sort of enticed the reader to read the chapter to uh, find out what texts uh, do that and how they do that.
1: Well, yeah, but but I, I also love how you are able to, just within one chapter, you, you are able to show us just how rich this, um, to quote Mary Berry's study, this information library how rich it was, and uh, even though we keep talking about sev- the seventeenth century as pre-modern, while well, their lives may have been rather colorful and they were reading all sorts of texts.
2: yeah, and this really this is really the key. they I mean pa- readers for the first time that could access the written word without an intermediary and publishers were there to fuel this hunger, right? And I think that uh, you mentioned, and I'm very glad you do so, uh, Professor Mary Elizabeth Berry's fantastic uh, work on Japan in print and her information, uh, library of information. And for me, this book in a way complements Professor Berry's work because I'm interested in knowledge which, and I make a difference, a very clear distinction between information and knowledge in the introduction. Um, And uh, therefore my chapters engage with a series of questions that um, uh, in a way complement to those that interested Professor Berry. Um, So uh, maybe these two books can be read uh, uh, together and uh, reveal different facets. Uh, And obviously mine is really uh, very much into the 17th century uh, um, uh, only.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so among these educational texts, you particularly mentioned this entire genre of books that taught people how to write letters, which I thought was really interesting. Yeah, to five. <laughs> yeah, this might sound strange to some since writing letters doesn't sound like a difficult task nowadays. Why was it necessary even for people to seek out these educational texts to learn about writing letters? And how difficult was it to write letters back then for different groups of people?
2: Um, yes, I mean manuals for letter writings. It may sound strange for somebody who writes letters in English, uh, but not for those who wish to write letters—proper letters. I mean, in Japanese, even nowadays, I mean, in twenty-first century Japan, is still publishing a wide range of manuals to teach readers how to write proper letters, or even proper emails. And these manuals uh, nowadays are geared not necessarily towards non-native speakers of Japanese like myself, but to also to Japanese native speakers. Uh, as a matter of fact, as in a, a confession probably, I consulted some uh, such manuals, 21st century manuals, when I had to write a polite handwritten letter to the abbot of Kombuin Temple in Nara to obtain permission to use the image that features on the cover. So, um, literacy, uh just to use a, a word promoted by Eve uh, Tevor Bennett, literacy or the different skills needed to be to the writing, reading and interpreting of letters is actually a type of knowledge that is separate from literacy and a type of knowledge that commercial publishers are eager to offer readers nowadays. And the beauty is that this started out in the 17th century. Um, and in the 17th century, admittedly, letter writing was even more challenging than nowadays because uh, the type of l- written language used in letters was not quite Vernacular. Uh, so going back to the spectrum of literacy, it was something really in between uh, a, a form of hybrid classical Chinese and vernacular Japanese. It is called a sorobun. And it also had a, a, a slightly different version that um, we think we normally associate to women even though one of my PhD students is is now uh, debating whether that's the case, but this normally associated to women letter writing style is called Maira Sesoro. So you actually had to learn a slightly different written language to write letters. Hence the need for manuals that would teach you how you need to, what words you need to use, what grammar you need to use, and also uh, what calligraphy you needed to apply. It was a very complex business. It is still complex today. As I said, there are manuals today, but it was much more complex at the time. Um, the I think that, though, what I, what I do in Chapter 5 is not only examining how literacy with all these components, linguistics, uh, grammatical, and, and calligraphic, was taught at the time. I also discuss how permeable the boundaries were between epistolary manuals, on the one hand, and narrative fiction constructed around the exchange of letters on the other. So I go back to this idea that really pleasure in profit, profit the to... Deep, to challenge any easy distinction between the aesthetic and the epistemic. Uh, so we read um, a manual and we can read it aesthetically. We read a piece of prose and we can read it in so to carry away some knowledge with us. Um, and I think that chapter five really allows me to um, uh, to do that. For example, I discuss a text which is entitled, and I leave the title in Japanese because it's very difficult to translate it actually, Nishikigi. Um, and it was, it. it is a miscellany of letter templates organized around love typologies. So you have a love typology and then here we have letters that fall into this love typology. Yeah. Um, it has been um, lab- it has been sort of relegated uh, to uh, uh, being forgotten. Uh, be- uh, Noda Hisao is the only really scholar I know of who has cared to talk about this text. And he introduces uh, Nishikigi as an uninspiring miscellany of letter templates. <laughs> um, um, but... Actually, it it is a miscellany that teaches how to write love letters for specific occasion, but also it offers charming snippets of narratives that can be enjoyed as stories. And in, in this chapter, I try to explore how the text moves from the letter template into a little bit of narration and how then the reader sort of absorbs this love story that starts being developed and then is abandoned uh, and how that continues for uh, the volumes of this text. I also uh, got very intrigued that um, Nishikigi has actually inspired uh, a text that um, is uh, has been illustrated by one of the uh, most uh, interesting and uh, um, uh, well-known um, artists of the time, Hishikawa Moronobu. It was a sexually explicit book, um, and actually, it uses uh, the letters, some of the te- letter templates from Nishiki, to Nishikigi, in order to further promote the knowledge of how to write a good letter that would uh, lead you to what you want, in this case, sexual encounter with the partner you fell in love with or felt attractive uh, by. But uh, So this sexually explicit book produces knowledge around letter writing. It is a manual, but it is also much more than a manual. So I hope that my reader will go away uh, reading the, this text as um, this chapter as really problematizing what is a manual and what is not a manual, and and the boundaries are very uh, are very uh, porous, are very permeable, and. Uh, knowledge-making, again, can be at the very core of manuals, but also of narratives. Um, and as I mentioned, I'm really happy that one uh, of my PhD students, Helen Magowan, is working on this text known as Nyohitsu, the woman brush, and she's trying to problematize how we interpret what on the surface appears simply manuals for letter. And I'm particularly happy because in the end, this is what I would like pleasure in profit to do. To inspire fresh research that complements and why not even challenge uh, the findings that I put forward uh, in in this book. Yeah, I hope that's it answered your question.
1: <laughs> yes, yes, no, it does. It's it's super interesting. Just by the way, did you find anything that can speak to um, whether these uh, educational texts worked?
2: Ah, that's a very good question. Um, Yes and no. Uh, for example, in Chapter 5, I look at a text which is entitled uh, Usuyuki Monogatari, so the tale of uh, light snow, and light snow is the name of the female protagonist. And it is a piece of epistolary prose. There are 31 letters, and the love story is, evolves through the letters uh, there is a very short narrative frame, and that's, that's, uh, that's it. But the letters allow the narrative to progress. And um, Noda Hisao has first mentioned this, that um, in uh, contemporary uh, other contemporary texts, Usuyuki Monogatari is mentioned as being used by fictional protagonists. As a manual that allowed them to write very good letters and therefore to win the heart of the person they were sending the, the love letters to. Obviously, these, these are reference references of the you know use, effective use of Usuyuki Monogatari, which is a tale they contain letters, um, and the, effective, uh, the effectiveness of these letters, um, uh, but it is fictional. So to what extent we can take it at face value, I'm not sure. And this is really something I struggled with and I felt very frustrated about. We have very little marginalia in these books. And if there are marginalia, I do discuss marginalia in conjunction to civility literature and manuals for etiquette, um, because some marginalia allows us to see that actually they were used for what they were meant, but some others show that they were used to create a story out of these manuals. But other than that, it's very rare to find marginalia, and it is even more rare to find somebody who wrote, I read this book, and I read it this way, and this is how, you know, what I I took home. Um, In chapter one, I do look at three diaries of kind of, um, well, well of uh, merchants and uh, what we can glimpse about uh, their uh, uh, reading experience. But again, there is nothing that tells us, I used this manual and I was successful. Uh, and that is very frustrating, but it is also the challenges of working on 17th century. Indeed.
1: And speaking of the use of uh, these texts and documents, As I was reading your book, I noticed that there's a huge number of images used in this book to show what these texts were like. Uh, And I know that you have always paid lots of attention to reading original documents. You have this annual summer school at Cambridge to teach people how to use primary sources. Um, How should we utilize these texts, both for those within and outside of academia?
2: What do you Mm. think? So books for me are indeed material entities and I firmly believe that we cannot discuss early modern Japanese literature without engaging with its materiality. That's not just down to 17th century but any uh, century, 18th, 19th century and any of the uh, textual typologies and later on really genres uh, of um, early modern literature. Um, So a lot of early modern books exist only in their original format, um, and some of the books I work on in this uh, text, uh, in this uh, in Pleasure and Profit, indeed are like that. So to access them, one has to access the original printed text. And I know that you, Yi, appreciated this aspect because you did indeed attend our summer school in early modern paleography that we run every year at Cambridge. And I know that you are a wizard uh, at decoding this complex script. So I know know, you're aware of what I'm saying. A lot of these texts just need us to uh, confront the uh, original text in highly cursive script. Second, uh, the second point is that The same contents, uh, no matter whether narrative or non-narrative, so it could be a fictional story or it could be a manual or anything in between, the contents could be and were indeed repackaged in different formats by different publishers at different points in times. And so... Pleasure in Profit studies how a new format often created new meanings. So for me, the inclusion of illustrations is never a matter of kind of prettifying my research or making it more visually appealing. But it is actually an inherent aspect of how I discuss the cultural and literary meanings of the texts I work on. And I must say that Columbia University Press was absolutely fabulous in accommodating a high number of pictures, and I'm really grateful for for that. Uh, But the bottom line is that for me, discussing early modern Japanese literature, no matter what text we're we're looking at, we really need to go back to its materiality, um, and uh, we're losing a lot if we don't do that. Yes,
1: and I completely agree with you. I mean, I'm not biased at all, but I absolutely agree. Uh, it's, it's also great to see that more and more people are paying attention to learning paleography nowadays, um, which I think is a great thing, especially for us studying pre-modern and early modern
2: Yeah, Japan. indeed. And I think that, in a way, this need started with my generation, um, and uh, uh, I think that your generation, maybe we are a generation apart, I don't know, uh, but uh, your generation um, is really, um, uh, it, it is expected that, um, uh, you know, somebody can read um, the text in their original format. And I must say that um, uh, I, you know, I, I now I came at University of Cambridge. I joined in 2012. Um, But my real formation, uh, I did my PhD in Italy, my home country, but my formative years were spent in Japan um, at Tokyo University, uh, mainly, uh, the University of Tokyo mainly. But um, um, my training for 17th century uh, books in particular was done under the, the Supervi- the supervision of Professor Fukasawa Akio. And he was adamant, you know, if you want to work on these materials, you have to be able to decode and transcribe. And I still remember how excited I was when I f- published my first transcriptions. Um, it was hard work, but when it's out and a lot of um, uh, readers who know Japanese but cannot read the cursive can access a text and you made it possible... Oh, that was such a, you know, a, a fantastic feeling. And I owe this to the wonderful teachers I had in Japan. And they are very inspiring seminars. Um, so uh, yeah, uh, I I had to do that in Japan on my own. Um, but I think that the it's now time to uh, train a generation of young scholars uh, to do that and to do that uh, despite the fact that they are Westerners or they're not native speakers of Japanese or um, they don't uh, study in Japan as such. So, yeah, yeah. so to have young scholars like you, it's fantastic. (laughs) It's wonderful. Um, Well, as we move
1: towards the end of this conversation, I want to broaden our scope here a little bit. You mentioned about these problems or rather misconceptions about pre-modern literature as well as pre-modern popular literature. What are the, some of these problems and what can we do to solve these problems?
2: Mm. Okay, I, I, I am aware of time, so I will keep my answer brief. But in a nutshell, I think that, as I mentioned before, early modern texts ask us to think about literature neither in terms of belles lettres, nor nor in terms of novels. Uh, We are really confronted with objects that at first sight seem alien. What do we do with this, right? Um, If we think in these terms, if we only think in terms of belles lettres or a novel, um, the majority of the texts we are confronted with do not make any sense. (laughs) <laughs> and so if we only approach them from by looking for uh, belles lettres or novels in the modern sense of the word, we relapse into the literary history of exclusion that I mentioned uh, before. And this is not simply down to the 17th century. Um, Japanese early modern popular prose discomforts us because it asks us to develop interpretative frameworks that we do not necessarily possess, really. Um, And so we need to be able to rethink our definition of literature. What helped me finding an effective framework for working with the sources for this project was reading about the developments in Western literary theory that pushed for a more democratic view of literature. Um, And so new historicism was one thing that really asked me to think very hard what is a text um, and um, how we get away from um, our preconceptions of what makes a text a good text. Um, And also um, I found very stimulating uh, to read about uh, popular culture and popular literature across cultures and across times. Um, For other texts uh, produced in the 18th century or the 19th century, one might need to apply different frameworks or even create new frameworks. Um, So either way, I think that perhaps the most productive way forward is to think about literature not as something specific to a culture, but more broadly as something shared by every culture. So I am in Japanese early modern literature, but I do try, as I mentioned, to read extensively about literature in other cultures, timeframes, and this inspires some of my research questions. Some might not be applicable to my materials, but some might be and may allow me to look at these materials in another way. And the hope is that the scholarship we produce on Japanese literature will be read by scholars of literature who are not specializing on Japan and that the engagement with our scholarship will equally prompt in them new research avenues uh, to study literature outside of Japan. And I think that this is really the meaning of our sort of motto at Cambridge, Japan and the world. So scholarship on Japanese literature can inspire thinking about literature outside of Japan. And for me, early modern Japanese literature is a wonderful arena for trying and initiating this this, uh, dialogue. Um, And I will be discussing this book uh, at the Society for Renaissance uh, Studies in uh, two months or something like that. So I'm I'm really intrigued to understand whether there was... uh, I I used a lot of the work by uh, scholars who worked on Uh, English popular culture, uh, uh, French popular culture, Italian and so on and so forth. And it will be interesting to understand whether there is something new and stimulating that they never thought about um, from their point of view. So it is this kind of um, uh, really dialogue that um, uh, I wish um, to be be, uh, further uh, expanded in the years to come.
1: That is such a great point, and I definitely look forward to seeing that that barrier between all these fields, all these different countries of literature, getting broken down
2: by by you and by many other scholars around the world. Yeah, by all of us, really, and I and I hope that um, yes, there will be more and more uh, of this uh, kind of dialogue. Well, thank you so much for this wonderful conversation.
1: Thank I, you. I really <laughs> Thank you. I really look forward to reading more of your studies.
2: Uh, yeah, I have a few projects which will take me away from the 17th century for a while. Um, and so they will be quite challenging, but um, always open to challenges, aren't we? <laughs> yeah, that's still quite,
1: that's very exciting. And thank you, our listeners, for joining us today. If you want to learn more about pre-modern Japanese popular literature and everything about readership and publication, make sure to check out Dr. Laura Moretti's Pleasure in Profit, Popular Prose in 17th Century Japan. This is Jin Yi from New Books on Japanese Studies. See you in our next episode. Until then, goodbye.